Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And we'll read verses 1 to 19. And then pray and have our Bible study. So Matthew chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the words, uh, works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And he said to them, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to be together tonight, Lord, and to have, Lord, open up to us uh, the very words of life. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us your word, Lord, that we have uh, such access to it, Lord, that we have these times where we can gather together with your people, Lord, in such uh, inviting and comfortable uh surroundings, Lord, and to open your word and to study it together. Father, we pray that you would use your word tonight, Lord, to sanctify us in the truth. Lord, knowing that your word is truth, that we would not doubt, uh, Lord, that we would not be like these people during the days of Christ who, uh, Lord, they rejected the word of God, Lord, and they took offense at it uh, because of the messengers. Lord, we pray that we would not uh, behave the way that they did, but rather that we would Lord, be humble and that we would receive your word and Lord, that we would do what it says. So Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears. Lord, give us a heart to understand. Lord, give us a mind of wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you build us up in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 11. This is on the heels of chapter 10, where Jesus uh, prepared and called his own disciples uh, and was sending them out uh, by twos to go out and to perform this ministry. And chapter 10 was a long discourse uh, where Jesus is teaching them of what is going to be true as they go and do ministry and these types of things, the cost of discipleship, 
how difficult, how hard it's going to be. So he's given this instruction to the 12, and then he himself is departing from there to go and teach and preach in the cities. So Jesus is constantly, right, his objective, right, his life is filled with preaching the word of God. This is what his focus is on, is to come and to teach the word of Christ to the people. This is what he was consumed with. And so this is what he is doing, uh, as he always does. He is going to teach and preach in the cities there in verse 1. Then in verse 2, it tells us that John, while he was imprisoned, we remember that there was a period of time where the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus overlapped, right? Briefly, temporarily, but pretty quickly into Jesus's ministry, John was imprisoned, right? He was imprisoned uh, because he was preaching against Herod because Herod had taken his brother's wife and was in this adulterous relationship. And the wife, Herodias, didn't like John because he was preaching against her, right? Preaching against her. So she stirred up John and, or she stirred up Herod and then Herod arrested John and had him imprisoned during this time. Well, this is during this time of imprisonment before uh, he is unjustly executed. He's heard of the works of Christ and he sent word by his disciples and is sending them to Jesus to ask him this question. Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Now, the question is, is what is going on with John, right? What is going on in the mind of John, in the life of John, right? Because we know from earlier passages, and we'll read some of those, that when John was announcing Christ to the people, when it was revealed to him that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, was the one that he was sent to prepare the way for. And John knew very clearly what his purpose was who he was and what he was called to do, which was to prepare the way of Christ. And he very clearly, with boldness, with clarity, with conviction, told the people who the Christ was, right? It's not me, but it is him, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yet now he is asking, are you the Christ? Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? So there is some doubt that is entered into the mind of John concerning the person of Christ and whether or not Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the expected one or whether they should look for someone else, another person who is the Christ and Jesus is just a prophet or a holy man, a righteous man, but he's not the Christ. So what is going on with John? And we would have to say here that what John is experiencing is momentary doubts, a temporary lapse of faith momentary unbelief because of his circumstance, right? Whenever we go through trials and hardships, right? It is very easy for us to be tempted to have doubts, to have questions, to wonder what's going on, right? We know that this is the case, even in the book of Job, righteous Job, who we know from Job 1 and 2, that there was nothing that Job was doing, right? In terms of committing, practicing sin, some overt sin that brought about the severe chastisement that he experienced, the many afflictions that he was uh, suffering through in Job 1 and 2, the loss of his possessions, the loss of his children, the loss of his health, right? All of these things were taken away from him. And it wasn't because Job was committing some flagrant sin against God and God was bringing these upon him as a punishment, but rather it was to prove to Satan as a test 
to show that Job served God not because of the blessings given to him by God, but because he loved the Lord, right? He loved the Lord. And it testifies twice in Job 1 and 2 that in all of this, it says that Job did not sin. He did not sin initially whenever he experienced those afflictions. But then later on, after his friends come and he begins to dialogue with them, Job himself began to question God. He began to have doubts. He began to accuse God of sin. And that was in the midst of his affliction. Well, here, John the Baptist, right? We know that he is a man, right? And we know that as a man, though he is a redeemed man, he's still a man and he's not been made perfect yet. He still has the flesh to contend with just as we all have the flesh. Now, in terms of men, he is very great. He's a very godly man, a very righteous man. He is a great and a holy prophet of God. Yet even the greatest of prophets were still men who still had the flesh, who still have not been made perfect, who are still pressing on for the upward calling of the prize that is in Christ Jesus. So John was not a man who was without sin. He was a man who had to be redeemed by Christ. And he is a man who is being sanctified by the power of Christ. And here he's having doubts. He's having doubts concerning the person and work of Christ. And this would be a sin, right? Now he's not practicing sin, right? This isn't lifelong sin. It is a temporary momentary lapse of faith that Jesus is going to confront and deal with and then give him his stability back so that he presses on and does not renounce the faith. We know that that is, doesn't happen with John because he ends up dying for the faith. He dies as a martyr. Look at Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul, who we would say is a very godly man, a very righteous man, one who would exceed us in terms of faith, ministry, and in every aspect of the Christian life. But in Philippians 3.12, the Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So there the apostle Paul concerning his own life, his own confession of himself is that he himself is not perfect yet. He's not perfect yet. And no Christian in this life will ever attain perfection. Anyone who teaches sinless perfectionism, they are false teachers. We know that they are not true teachers of God because they have to be holier than John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, and the, and the prophet Moses, right? And all the other saints of the Bible, right? They attain a way of life that is greater than the prophets and the apostles. This is how arrogant and delusional these people are. If we look at Numbers chapter 20, Numbers chapter 20, we know that Moses was himself a very holy man, a godly man. Even in Numbers chapter 12, God testifies concerning Moses that there is no one as meek as Moses on all the earth. So God's own testimony of Moses was this way. And that with other prophets, God speaks in visions and dreams, but not with Moses. He speaks to him face to face as someone does to his friend. 
Yet was Moses completely perfect and without any sin in this life? Well, no. Numbers chapter 20, verse uh, 11. Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. When it says you have not believed me, right? Well, Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, he didn't believe God in this situation, so he committed a sin. And because of that sin, the punishment that Moses and Aaron faced is that they died in the wilderness without getting to enter into the promised land. They died before the people entered into the promised land. And in the same way, this is what uh, is happening with John the Baptist. He is having a moment of doubt, of uncertainty. He's, he doesn't have the clarity, the conviction that he had before. Now we say that he had before because of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we know that earlier, when he was in the prime of his ministry, that he had great clarity concerning the person of Christ, and that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Christ, and that this is what he was announcing to the people and to his own disciples. John 1, verses 19 to 36, says, This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So when it says there, the one, the one, that's the expected one, the promised one, the one that was announced by the prophets throughout the Old Testament, that God would send forth the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, and he would be the one to deliver the people from their sins by his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And John knows very clearly who this person is right here. He's telling them, that's the man right there, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one. And he says, he is the son of God. He knows that he is the son of God and that 
the Holy Spirit is upon him and that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Then also in John chapter 3, verse 25. John 3, 25. says, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So does John have a good, clear understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Yes. Absolutely, right? He has all of this, and he's testifying to the people concerning these things. Yet here, he's questioning, is this indeed the case? Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And this I would take because of his situation. He is a prophet. He's been faithful to God. And yet now he finds himself in prison, right? In a very difficult situation, right? Unjustly imprisoned because of these things. So he has these doubts. His faith is weak because of his circumstance. But again, this is momentary. It's temporary, right? And even Christians, even true believers will have temporary or momentary lapses, right? It's two steps forward and one step back and two steps forward and one step back, right? This is the way of the Christian life. It's progressive sanctification. We are daily growing more and more and being conformed into the image of Christ, but not perfectly. And we have moments of weakness. We have moments of doubts, right? Moments where the flesh, uh, uh, we give into the flesh and we don't walk by the Spirit, but we have to overcome those things, right? We have to overcome them and John has to overcome them. So, it's a sin. It needs to be dealt with. He needs to repent of it. He needs to overcome it, right? And I'm making that distinction between temporary and between the one who practices sin. Because many people will say, well, we're all sinners, right? And they'll use that to justify committing sin uh, in perpetuity, right? Over and over again for a very long time. And they have no desire to overcome it. They have no desire to grow. They're content to live in their sin and then they use this excuse, well, we're all sinners. And even John sinned uh, as an excuse for why they've been committing this sin and practicing this sin, right? Living in fornication, living uh, in uh, as a thief, right? Doing this or that, whatever it is that they're doing. And they'll use that as an excuse to justify their own sin. But there is a difference between someone who is a righteous man, a godly man, such as John the Baptist, or such as it was testified of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, 
of Moses, of David, of Solomon, right? All godly, righteous men, what is true of their life consistently from start to finish, from their conversion to their death, is that they lived a holy life, that they lived a godly life, but they had moments of sin, moments of doubt where they had their failings, and then they had to overcome them and repent and press on to the kingdom of God. And that is very different than someone who is living a sinful life, right? And who has no desire to overcome sin, but then uses these people to justify their own sin. And we cannot do that. First John chapter 3 makes this distinction that we cannot practice sin. Right? And we know that when John is saying this, he cannot mean that we can never sin. And if we ever sin one time, then it shows that we're a child of the devil. Yeah. He's already said, if we say we have no sin, we're what? He says we're liars and the truth is not in us, right? That's John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor does the one who does not love his brother. So John is not practicing sin. He has sin, but he's not practicing it in this way. He is a righteous man, right? He practiced righteousness throughout his life, but here he has a moment of weakness, right? A failing, a doubt, a sin, and he needs to overcome it. So what does Jesus do? Verse four, Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Here, Jesus shows that he is the good shepherd. How he deals with his people, with such gentleness, with kindness, with patience. Now, he doesn't beat around the bush. He's truthful in what he says, and he's telling John, you need to overcome this, right? You need to have conviction. You need to get these doubts out of your mind. But Jesus doesn't say, what an idiot this guy is. How could he doubt me, right? What's wrong with him, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't beat him over the head. He doesn't do that, right? There's a sin. It needs to be dealt with. Jesus deals with it, but the way he deals with it is the proper way, right? In this way, he is showing himself to be the good shepherd, the good shepherd who binds up the weak, right? Those who are lame, he helps, right? He comes and he helps them and he will not, uh, the bruise reed he will not break, the smoking flax he will not extinguish or he will not quench. Here in this case, John is a bruised reed and he's not going to break him, right? He's not going to extinguish him, but rather he's going to extinguish the sin and fan into flame the righteousness, the faith that existed in John. 
This is the type of shepherd that Jesus is toward his people. And this is the way that we should be toward one another as well. We should bear each other's burdens. And in this way, we should fulfill the law of Christ. If one of our brothers is struggling, is stumbling, is failing, then we need to come and help them, right? We have to deal with the sin. We can't neglect the sin or deny the sin, but we should deal with them in the proper way, out of love. And this is what Jesus does here. In Isaiah chapter 40, it uh, tells us of what kind of shepherd Jesus is toward his people. Isaiah 40 verse 11. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is what he does for his people. He carries them. He tends them. He carries them in his arms. He puts them in his bosom. Isn't that what he's doing with John here? John is having this doubt and Jesus is not casting him away but rather is going to come and help him, help him to overcome his sin. Also, Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. Ezekiel 34, 11. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. There he says he will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. And in this way, there is a little sickness in John, and Jesus is going to strengthen him. He's going to strengthen him. So that's what Jesus does for his people. So then how does Jesus strengthen him? How is Jesus going to help John overcome his unbelief, his doubt? Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. What does he point John to? He goes to the Bible. Go tell John this. Go tell him this scripture, that this scripture is fulfilled in me. And John, knowing the Bible, knowing the Old Testament, knowing the prophets and what they prophesied concerning the Christ, whenever he sees that this scripture is fulfilled in Christ, his doubts will dissipate, right? They'll be gone and he will be strengthened in his faith. He won't be wavering, wobbling, stumbling here and there, but then he will be steady and he will be immovable again in his conviction concerning the person of Christ. He points him to the word of God. And here he quotes from uh, two passages, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah chapter 61, right? Both of these passages are predicting what the Christ will do whenever he comes into the world. The blind will receive sight. 
the lame will walk, the lepers will be cleansed, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised, and the poor will have the gospel preached to them. Right? The ministry of Christ is accompanied, right? When it's saying this, it means it in two senses. Spiritually speaking, this is what Jesus is doing for all the elect. They all are receiving sight. They all are lame and they're made to walk. All of them are lepers and they are being cleansed. All of them are deaf and their ears are being opened. All of them are dead and they're being raised up from the dead. All of them are poor in spirit and they're having the gospel, the good news, preached to them. And then accompanying this spiritual work is the physical work, the good deeds that Jesus is doing, where he is literally opening the physical eyes of those who are blind, unstopping the ears of those who are deaf. Those who are lame are being made to walk. Lepers are being cleansed physically. The dead are being raised physically to testify and to prove, to verify to the people that Jesus is the Christ and that they should put their hope in him. So go tell John this is what is happening, right? And how could these things happen by anything other than the power of God? It's impossible for someone to do these things by the power of the devil, right? Or by the power of man or by the power of a false god. A false god can't do anything. They themselves are blind. How can a blind false god give sight to those who are blind when the god itself is blind? They can't do anything like that. But here, Jesus is doing this by the power of God. And these signs testify that he is indeed the Son of God. And that we should not be doubting him or have any offense at him. So what was prophesied in Isaiah is being accomplished and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. So this is given to John to strengthen his faith. Right, pointing him to the word of God. And isn't that what we need? Whenever we have sin, there's unbelief. There's doubt. We're not believing the word of God. And what we need is to go to the word of God. We need our faith to be built up. We need to pray as the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. We should be praying, Lord, increase our faith. And then where do we go to do this? How does God increase our faith? Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The means is the word of Christ. In this, we have an example in the way that Jesus dealt with John. He gave him the word of God. So this is what we should do. Whenever someone is struggling with something, whenever there is a sin, whenever there is some unbelief or doubt in them, they don't need the wisdom of this world. They don't need your opinion or my opinion. Jesus doesn't even give him his opinion. He points to the scriptures. He goes to the prophets. Though Jesus' opinion is the word of God, and he could have said that, and what Isaiah said is the word of Christ, so this is his word, but he points him to the word of God, to the Bible, and this is what we need to do as well, to the teaching and to the testimony, to the, or to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no dawn. Isaiah 8, verse 20. And then verse 6, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, this is stated in the positive, in the form of the blessing, but the inverse is true as well. If you do take offense of Christ, then what will be true of you? You'll be cursed by God. Yeah, 
You are blessed if you don't take offense. You are cursed if you do take offense at Christ. John, he knows, is a true believer. So he's giving it in the positive. You will be blessed, John, if you're not offended by me, right? Whenever we are going through sufferings and hardships, the temptation is for us to be offended by Christ, to be offended of him, to shrink back, to be ashamed of him so that we can avoid our suffering, to say, well, I'll just be a secret disciple. I'll keep quiet. For John to say, you know, I'll just go to the wilderness and find a hole to live in, a cave to live in, and I'll live there by myself, and I won't interact with anyone else, I won't say anything, and then I won't be in prison. Then I won't have to suffer because it's his preaching, it's his words that got him into trouble, right? He was preaching against sin, calling the king to repent of his sin. I'll just keep my mouth shut, but we can't do that, right? We can't do that. If we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. But if we testify him, then he will testify of us before his father and the angels. And that's why we are blessed if we are not offended at Christ. The blessing of God will be upon us because it proves that we have true faith. True faith, that we're the real deal. We're a true believer when we are not offended at Christ. Matthew 13, Matthew 13, verse 57. Next, let's pick up in verse 53, Matthew 13, 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So they took offense at Christ, at his commonality to them, that his familiarity to them. Right? Who is this man? Where did he get all this? Who does he think he is? Right? They could not overcome these things to listen to his word. They were offended at him. Well, there's no blessing there, right? And that's why he didn't do much for them. But he's telling John, you are blessed if you're not offended at me. So that's the way that we should be. We should not be ashamed of the Lord, nor should we be ashamed of the prisoners of the Lord. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, when he tells Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, right? I am the prisoner of the Lord. I've been imprisoned because of my testimony about the Lord. Don't be ashamed of either one of us, but rather we should confess Christ. Confess Christ before men. Verse 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What, did, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before me. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there are not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Here, Jesus is giving a defense of John. A defense of John. Right, because the armchair disciples, the armchair critics, the phony false prophets, right? These kinds of people like to ridicule. Well, look at John. Look at how weak he is. Look at him. Wow. Look, at, he's having all these doubts. There aren't people like this. I wouldn't do that. When these people never suffer at all, right? They never suffer at all. So there are people who might be critical of John, who might begin to demean him, to say, well, well, why should we look up to this man, right? Why should we listen to him? Because look, he's got his doubts, right? He has his failings. And they might be willing to reject the message of John because of this one moment of doubt. And there are many people like this, modern day experts who sit in their cushy offices, who never so much as suffer a hangnail on their finger, and yet they are the biggest critics of the saints of the Bible. They love to ridicule them. They love to mock them. They love to mock Peter and John and Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Moses. They love to fault find them and they will find fault with them under every rock and cranny that they can possibly find. They can't even take a step without these people criticizing them and accusing them of some sin in some way. This is the way that many people look at the saints of the Bible, especially the saints of the Old Testament. But we should not have this perspective. We should see them as godly men, as holy men, right? Who lived righteous lives, not perfect men, but men who were godly, who were holy, who walked with God, who did the will of God, and we have to follow their example. We have to follow in their footsteps, and they are commended to us in Hebrews chapter 11 as men of faith, men of faith who lived righteous lives, and we have to be like them, right? We have to follow them and walk in the same steps that they walked. Isn't that what it says in Romans 4 about Abraham, right? We have to share in the faith of our father Abraham. We have to have the same faith as our father Abraham, right? This is the way that we have to be. So John is going to be defended by Jesus from those who might criticize him, right? Those who might criticize him. He's speaking to them about John. He says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Did you go out into the wilderness? And when you saw John, was he a reed shaken in the wind? Was his message one thing one day and another message the next day, right? Always all over the place, going and uh, taking polls and surveys of the people to find out what they wanted to hear and then accommodating his message to the people, right? Is this the way that John behaved? Is this the way he conducted his ministry? That he was wishy-washy, he's like a wave of the ocean tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. Was he like this? Was he an unstable man in his teaching, in his doctrine, in what he was preaching to the people? A reed shaken in the wind. No, he wasn't like that at all. John was stable, right? He was dogmatic. He knew what he believed and he knew what he needed to preach and his message was a consistent, faithful message summarized with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
This is what he proclaimed to the people, and he was no pleaser of men. He wasn't changing his message to accommodate the wealthy, the religious, no people. He told it straight the way it needed to be told, even to King Herod, right? Even to King Herod, he preached against his sin. He is not a reed shaken by the wind, but one who was stable, stable and firm in his faith, in his ministry, and in his teaching. That's the way that we have to be as well. We cannot be tossed to and fro. Ephesians chapter 4. We don't want to be like children that are led astray easily. Isn't it easy to dupe children? Right? Oh yeah, it's real easy. You know, you can sucker them, bamboozle them, you know. But we don't want to be like that in our faith. Ephesians 4, 14 says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So we don't want to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried along by every wind of doctrine. And there are many people who are like this. They believe this on Monday, something else on Tuesday, another thing on Wednesday. Whatever is the latest, greatest scholarship, the latest, greatest uh, movement, they fall in line and they follow after it and they love it. John wasn't like that at all. He's not a reed shaken by the wind. What else does he say? Did you go to see a man dressed in soft clothing? <laughs> Those who are wearing soft clothing are in king's palaces. Was John in it for fame and fortune? Was he in it for the money? Was he in it so that he could have a comfortable life? Live a fat, happy, sassy life like so many uh, fat pastors today? No, he wasn't like this at all. He wasn't living in palaces. He wasn't dressed in fine clothing. He had a very difficult life in terms of he didn't have the comforts of life. He lived in the wilderness, out in the desert. His food was locust and honey, right? He wore uh, rough garments. So he wasn't like that at all. He wasn't about the comforts and pleasures of this life. He wasn't doing his ministry in order to gain the favor of the nobility, of the rich, of the kings, of the powerful, of those who would bring him into palaces and wine and dine him. False prophets, they're the ones that do that. They want to curry the favor of the rich and famous. But John wasn't like that at all. He wasn't concerned with the comforts and pleasures of life. So then what kind of a man was he? Verse 9, what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, one who is more than a prophet. You went out to see a prophet of God, a holy prophet of God, who was preaching, proclaiming the words of God, the very words of God, a representative of God who spoke the words of God to you. That's who you went out to see. Now, if that's who you went out to see as a prophet, then what should you do? You should listen to him. You should listen to him and obey him and do what he tells you to do because he's not speaking on his own authority. If he's a prophet of God, whose authority is he speaking on? He's speaking on God's authority, right? No prophecy ever came about by a man's own interpretation, by the will of man. But these prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God. This is how John was carried along. Amos chapter 3, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. 
says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. God reveals his secret counsels to his servants, the prophets. The prophets are servants or slaves of God, revealing to the people the counsels of God, the judgments of God, the wisdom of God, what God requires of them. And John was telling them to repent. You, you better repent of your sin because the righteous one is coming. The holy one is coming. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. Yeah. And already the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear good fruit, he's going to chop it down and throw it into the fire. So you better repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what John was preaching to them. And Jesus says he was not only a prophet, he was more than a prophet. This is the one whom it is written, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. If we go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Right, he's going to send the messenger before the Lord. God will send, and there in Malachi 3.1, my messenger, Christ. Jesus is the one who sent John before him. The Son sent John before him, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all together, but it is my messenger who comes before me, right, in the first person. So he was sent by Christ to prepare the way because when Jesus comes to his people, he's going to refine them. Who can, who can tolerate it, he says? Who can endure it the day of his coming, right? It's going to be a day of judgment, right? He's going to come to bring judgment to his people and to refine them as one refines gold. So this is who John is. He is the messenger predicted by Malachi who would come and prepare the way for the Lord, for God in human flesh. When God would be incarnated, the second person of the Trinity would become man, take on human flesh, Right, he would be born into this world in history, right, at a certain time in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, it says in Galatians chapter 4. Right, well, when he would come and when this would happen, God would raise up a special prophet who would prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And how did John prepare them? By preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is why he says, he is more than a prophet, right? Because he, of all the prophets, has this unique, special role. All the other prophets prophesied of Christ, but they died before the Christ came into the world. John is the only prophet who prophesied of Christ, and he lived to see it accomplished in his own day. He saw him with his own eyes, and he was the one. The other ones pointed people to the Christ who was to come, 
But they were not able to say to the people in their own day, that their generation, that man over there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John was able to do that. He was able to point to that man. You see him over there. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Son of God. You need to believe in him. And John also had the great privilege and blessing of baptizing Jesus. Right? Isn't that a wonderful privilege? A great blessing that none of the other prophets got to experience? But John did. And in this way, this is what Jesus means when he is uh, more than a prophet. And in verse 9, Truly, among those born to women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Right? No one else had these privileges, this blessing given to them. In terms of all of the men, all of the prophets, only John was given this. And this is why he is the greatest born among women. In terms of his position, his calling, his office, his ministry, no one had a greater role than John, who was the forerunner of Christ. Now, he doesn't mean here that the other prophets had a substandard message and that John's message was superior to them. That can't be the case at all because all of the prophets spoke the word of God right. and all the word of God is pure. It is pure, it is holy, it is true, it is righteous. So he can't mean that John's doctrine is more pure, more truthful, that it's more righteous than the doctrine and the message of the prophets because all of the prophets are speaking the words of God right. and all the word of God is true, it is pure, and it is righteous. But they all testified of the Christ who was to come and John lived to see his days, right? To see his days and to see these things fulfilled. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Verses 22 to 26. Acts 3.22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with the fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So Moses and all the prophets spoke of these days, the days of Christ. But they died before those days were fulfilled. But John spoke of those days and he lived to see it. He lived to see it and he had this unique, special privilege of being the one to announce to the people the Christ. Then he says, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, greater than John the Baptist. Now this uh, has been a dilemma for many people when they read this. What, what does he mean? In what way is he saying this? Right. Well, he's saying it in order to comfort us, because we're not John the Baptist, and none of us are prophets, and none of us are apostles. Yet, even the least, right, even the most insignificant believer, child of God in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than John, right? We will experience, right, greater joys in heaven than John experienced on this earth. 
when we see Christ face to face. He's not saying that John isn't going to experience those things. John will experience those things as well in heaven. And what John experiences in heaven will be greater than what he experienced on earth. But all of us, all believers, even the least in the kingdom of heaven, will be greater, will have a greater uh, experience of knowledge and of knowing the Lord and communion with the Lord in heaven than what John experienced on this earth. And in that way, we will be greater than John, right? That, that's what he means. He doesn't mean that we're all have more wisdom than John, that we're more godly than John, that we have greater faith than John. He can't mean it that way. Or that we're going to be in the best part of heaven and John's going to be in the slums over there, you know, slumming it up and we're going to have the, the good spot. He can't mean it in that way, right? He cannot mean it in that way. He has to mean it in terms of uh, what we all experience in the kingdom of heaven. So that is one interpretation. Another possible interpretation would be that even the least of the disciples will be greater than John because John won't live to see the death and resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> but the disciples and many even of his followers, even the least of them, will live to see the full ministry of Christ, which John didn't see. They'll hear more of his preaching, more of his teaching. They'll see more of the miracles of Christ than what John saw. And they'll live to see his death and his resurrection. And they'll see the Lord after that. And they'll see his ascension. And in that way, what they will see will be even greater than what John saw. But again, he cannot mean it in the sense that John is some substandard Christian and that we or others are greater than him. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. From the days of John until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The kingdom suffers violence. Now, again, this is another one that you could take in one of two ways. Either he means the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, that the kingdom of heaven advances violently, right? Violently, not violently in a physical sense, but violently in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense, it is violent because it's the sword of the spirit that penetrates soul and spirit, and divides joint and marrow. Right? Isn't this what happens whenever someone is converted? Isn't it a dead person coming back to life? Yeah. Isn't it a violent uh, taking of one of Satan's children, one of those who belongs to him, and snatching him out of the fire and bringing him into the kingdom of God? Yeah. This is the way of the kingdom. It is spiritually violent because we have to preach against sin. We have to preach the judgment of God. We have to preach repentance. And when the conscience of a man is pricked by the Holy Spirit, he's cut to the heart. He's cut to the quick. He's terrorized with the knowledge of his sin and the knowledge of the wrath of God. And it is the sword of the Spirit. So he means it in a spiritual sense, that it advances violently in this way, right, in this way. Or he could mean it in the sense that it suffers violence from wicked men, which is true as well, right? Both of these things are true. So in this way, either interpretation doesn't contradict some other part of the Bible, right? Both of these things are true. Is it true that the kingdom of heaven in this life now suffers violence? Yes, yes because wicked men hate it and they want to oppose it and they fight against it. Even John the Baptist is experiencing this. He's in prison right now and he's gonna have his head cut off. And that's a violent thing to do to someone. And it's happening because of his faith. So in these ways, then 
It could be that it advances violently through spiritual warfare or that it suffers violence from the hands of wicked men. But then also, he says, violent men take it by force. Violent men, right? Again, not meaning violent men in this world. Those who are going around beating people up and they're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, right? right? If you go punch someone in the face, you get a straightway ticket to the kingdom of heaven. Or if you go murder someone and you're a violent man, well, no, we know that violent men like that, brutal men like that, they have no part in the kingdom of heaven. He means it again spiritually. Spiritually speaking, it is a violent man spiritually who enters into the kingdom of heaven. Not a casual man. Not someone who's just curious. I'm just going to go and see and, and take a Sunday stroll into the kingdom of heaven. You can't get in that way. You have to force your way in violently. And when a person comes to the knowledge of his sin, when he realizes that the wrath of God is upon him and that he is destined for hell, there's nothing that's going to stop him from getting into the kingdom of heaven. Whatever it takes, he will do. Whatever it takes to have his sins forgiven, he will do. He will repent of whatever sin he needs to repent of. If he needs to cut off his hand, what will he do? He's going to cut it off. If he has to sever this relationship, he's going to sever it. If he has to forsake his family, he's going to forsake them. And doesn't Jesus say that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me? Is the cross a violent death or not? It is a violent death. That's what he means. The violent take it by force. Those who are willing to die for their faith, right? Who are willing to die, who will do whatever it takes to get Christ. They will flee and they will run to Christ and no one's going to stop them. Like Zacchaeus, he climbed up into a tree in order to see Christ. What about in Mark chapter 10, the blind man sitting by the road? He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they said, hey, you, shh, be quiet over there, right? Keep it quiet. Don't bother him. And what did he do when they did that? He cried all the louder, right? He raised his voice even louder. He got more violent, right? More zealous, more obnoxious to them. But what did Jesus do for him? He healed him, right? He healed him because he knew that this was the man who could forgive him of his sins and heal him of his physical ailment. And so he did whatever it took. This is the way that we have to be as well. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All the law and the prophets prophesied until John. And according to what we read in Acts chapter 3, what is the central message of the law and the prophets? What days did they predict? The days of Christ. They put the people in expectation of the coming of Christ. This is what they predicted. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Everything in the Old Testament is building to the coming of Christ. It's centered on the person and work of Christ. All of the scripture is centered on the person and work of Christ because only in Christ can we have the forgiveness of sins. Can we be redeemed? Can we be reconciled to God? his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what was predicted in the Old Testament in the prophets. 
And in the Old Testament, in Malachi, again, Malachi told them that Elijah would come again before that great day of the Lord. Not meaning that Elijah, Elijah would come reincarnated, but that one like Elijah, one in the spirit of Elijah, with the power of Elijah, because we read earlier from John chapter 1 that John the Baptist told them he was not Elijah, meaning he's not Elijah reincarnated, but he is the one that was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, the one like Elijah, who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. And that's why Jesus says John himself is Elijah who was to come. John is that prophet that was prophesied who would be the one to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And then who is the Lord? Jesus. Jesus. Who's talking to them? So what do they need to do? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You better listen. That's the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. You better listen to John and you better listen to me. Because John was a prophet and he was sent to prepare the way for me. And now I am God in human flesh and I am here to testify to you of what I have seen from the Father. And if you don't listen to me and if you don't listen to John, then you're going to die in your sin and you're going to go to hell. So if you have ears to hear, you better hear. You better listen, right? You have to have spiritual ears to hear. Then verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance, and we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified or vindicated by her deeds. Here, now Jesus is going to chide the people, right? Because of their unbelief, because of their unbelief. What are you people like? What should I compare this generation? Now, not every single person in the generation, not his disciples, not his followers, not the true believers, but generally speaking, he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. So what was generally true of this generation, of these people that Jesus performed the majority of his ministry around. Well, they're like children, spoiled brat children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children who say, we played the flute and you did not dance. We sang the dirge and you did not mourn. You people are malcontents is what Jesus is telling them. You're grumblers. You're fault finders. You are people who it doesn't matter what I do, what John does, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to be pleased. This is the kind of people that you are. The issue with the people is their heart. They have a hard, rebellious, stubborn, wicked heart filled with unbelief. They have a forehead of brass, right? This is the kind of people they are. They love their sin and they refuse to listen to the word of God, right? That's the problem. But no one will come out and be honest and admit that. No one will say, I'm a hard-hearted sinner and I hate the word of God because these are hypocrites, right? These are religious people. These are Jews, Israelites who have the word of God, who claim to be children of God. We are the children of Abraham. We were not born in adultery, they say in John chapter eight. 
So they claim to be children of God. They're very religious people, but then they use lame excuses, lame excuses to justify their unbelief. And they find fault with the messenger. They attack the messenger so that they can reject his message. That's the problem. They hate the word of God, but they have to find a way to justify their rejection of the word of God. So they find fault with the messenger. How did they find fault with John and Jesus? Well, in the issue of eating and drinking, eating and drinking, right? Now is eating and drinking the way that John conducted himself in contrast to the way that Jesus conducted himself. And Jesus says that John was one way and I'm another way in the way that they ate and drank. Was John sinning by neither eating nor drinking, right? Not that John never ate or drank. Of course he had to eat and drink, but he wasn't going to feast He wasn't eating the normal food that common people eat, right? He wasn't consumed with steaks and potatoes and ribs. I mean, not that there's a problem with those things, right? He wasn't consumed with all the dainties and fine things of life, right? So John was not sinning by having this simple diet, locusts, wild honey, water, right? Whatever he was eating and drinking. Was Jesus sinning by eating and drinking, going to feast? eating a better quality of food than John, drinking a better drink than what John drank. No, none of them were sinning. Neither John nor Jesus was sinning in the way of eating and drinking because of Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Neither one of them was sinning in terms of eating and drinking. Well, John came and he did not eat or drink. John was in the wilderness. He wasn't feasting. He wasn't going into homes, right? He wasn't living a normal life that most people live, going to uh, birthday parties, going uh, to weddings, going to this uh, invitation, that invitation. And whenever you go into people's homes, they uh, fix fine food for you and you all sit down and enjoy it. Was John doing that? No, he was in the wilderness living a simple life, right? A very simple life. He wasn't eating and drinking. He was focused on preaching the word of God. And whenever they saw that, they said, look at this guy. He's a fanatic. He's a wild man. He's crazy. Look at him. He doesn't eat or drink. He must have a demon. He lives out in the wilderness. What's wrong with him? Look at the way that he dresses. Look at his diet. Look at the way this man conducts himself. He's a He has a demon. That's why he does these things. Right, but what's the real issue there? It's not his eating and drinking. The issue is they hate the word of God and they need some reason to reject the message of John because of John, they don't want to repent of their sin. So they say he must have a demon. Now they've slandered John and we don't have to listen to him because who should listen to a demon-possessed man? No one, right? So he didn't eat or drink and this is why they rejected him. Then Jesus comes eating and drinking. Jesus didn't live in the wilderness. He went village to village. He went into homes. He ate with people. He went to the wedding at Cana. He went to the feast, right? He did these things. He did what was more normal and natural in terms of society, in terms of the interaction with other people. He ate and drank. And what did they say about Jesus? Look at him. He's a glutton. He's a, a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, why were they saying this about Jesus? 
because he was preaching the same exact message of John. John was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They used the asceticism of John to reject his message, and then they used the eating and drinking of Jesus to reject his message as a reason to justify their unbelief. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't please them. That's the point that Jesus is making here because of their sin, because of their stubbornness and their hardness of heart, no matter what we do, you will never be pleased. You will never be happy. You will always find some reason to reject me because you hate my message. This is the problem. And this is the way it is today as well. Sure. People have always been like this. If someone is preaching the Bible, they will come up with the most lame excuses imaginable to justify getting as far away from them as they possibly can. If you smile, they'll say, you should be more serious. If you're serious, they'll say, why are you so serious all the time? You should be more lighthearted, right? Why are you so somber in these things? You need to lighten up a little bit. If you're soft-spoken, they'll say, this man, he has no conviction, right? He's so soft-spoken. Then if you rant and rave and shout and scream, they'll say, what's wrong with this guy? He's a lunatic, right? Why is he always screaming at us? Why is he so harsh and bitter all the time? If you stand, they'll say, why doesn't he sit? If you sit, they'll say, why doesn't that guest stand up? He doesn't have any reverence for God. If your sermon is too short, they'll criticize you. If it's too long, they'll criticize you, right? There's nothing that you can do to please malcontents, grumblers, and fault finders. But what is the real problem? It's not the messenger. It's not John. It's not Jesus. The real problem is them, their heart, their unbelief, their wickedness. They will not repent. They will not mourn at the preaching of John. They will not dance at the preaching of Christ because they're dead. They are dead, stillborn children who have no life in them and they have an unbelieving heart. And this is the way people are today. So don't be surprised if people will come up with many lame excuses to justify getting as far away from us as they possibly can. They will. And I've heard several throughout the years. But ultimately, wisdom will be vindicated by her deeds. The wisdom of God will be vindicated. Amen. And the true preachers of God will be vindicated, right? They will be vindicated by their deeds. So these people will be exposed for the phonies that they are. John and Jesus will be vindicated. And those who preach the word of Christ, they will be vindicated as well. Okay, well, we'll stop there for tonight. And then we'll pick up in verse 20 next week.